are listening to the preaching ministry of Faith Baptist Church. There often are pressures and challenges, trials that we face as the pressures of the systems that we're in make us feel oppressed, marginalized, persecuted, even suffering. Of course, this intensifies when specific government, economic, social institutions add to that pressure. This was the quandary for many believers in Asia Minor who were living out their Christian lives under the government of the Roman Empire. Uh, This was also the challenge for the Apostle John as he was living out his faith in a banished, imprisoned, hard labor sentence for his faith on the Isle of Patmos. As Christians, to some degree, we can empathize with the difficulty that we face living out our faith when we don't have a godly system to live it out underneath. And so John uh, is encouraged in the book of Revelation to write down things that God did to encourage him. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, we know that Jesus Christ appeared to John in person in his exalted, glorified state on the Isle of Patmos. Then in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, that we're beginning to look at tonight, Jesus appears to John a second time. However, this second time is different than the time that we read about in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, 9 through 20, Christ appeared in his exalted form to John at what location? Earth. It was an appearance in the terrestrial realm. But in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, He appears to John in an exalted form again, but this time it's on an exalted level in the heavenly spiritual realm. That's the difference, and that is going to open a door for us into what is happening in heavenly places. And uh, we're going to get started with that tonight. Let's begin by taking a look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 which tells us about the heavenly throne room of God and gives us a divine invitation. John is already in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, received a commission to write Revelation. Then he encountered Christ in his exalted state, Revelation 1 as well. Then he received seven messages for seven churches in Revelations 2 through 3. Then, in Revelation 4.1, he writes, After these things, and this word, this phrase, indicates what John saw next in the sequence of what was given to him for the book or the scroll of Revelation. And so he says, these are the things that happen next. He also tells us that he heard a voice. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. And by that, he is referring back to the sound of the voice of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, which was as a trumpet. This refers back to the beginning of Revelation chapter 1 that tells us this entire book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is giving us these inside pieces of information through John. This trumpet-like voice John hears, and it is a divine invitation, a portal, if you will, into the heavenly realm. Rather than just appearing to, to John on earth, now he invites John to see what's happening in heaven And John describes this best as he can tell as a door. And you don't need to picture necessarily what we think of today, a door hanging on two hinges on the side of the door frame with a knob that you open hanging open. 
Uh, it could be any type of entrance, a portal, an entrance from this world into heaven, some opening, some kind of entrance. And here, John is being invited to see what's going on, not just outside of the Roman Empire, not just outside of his imprisonment, but above these things. And sometimes that's what we need as well. We need to see what's going to happen next. We need to see what's happening outside of what we're going through. We need to see what's happening above the situations that we face. This divine invitation is from a heavenly vantage point. And it says, which must take place after this? These things refer especially, this after this description, to Revelation 6 through 16. Revelations 4 through 5 open with these words, After these things I looked. And you will find that there is a similar wording in Revelation 17, and then at the beginning of, I believe it's Revelation 20, uh, in the same book. And so these words give us kind of a, a section division. This is the start of a new section in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 is section 1. Revelation 2 through 3 is the next section. Then Revelations 4 through 16 is the next. It's a large section. It's going to take us a while to get through it. But this section is a series of judgments that God in the future is going to pour out on the world. As far as John was concerned, it only had to happen sometime after whatever was happening to the churches in Revelation 2 through 3. Of course, we're still waiting for these things to happen, but Jesus didn't say there are going to be 2,000 more years. He just said the next thing that I want you to know about is this. Now, the things that John witnessed, he witnesses in heaven about things that are going to happen in the future. We will not begin discussing the judgments of this section until chapter 6. But we will begin preparing for them by seeing where they originate, why they originate, and who has the authority to send them? Because I'll admit to you, if we study the series of judgments in these sections of Revelation, you will sometimes feel as though they are harsh. They are cruel. They are mean. The wrath of God is not a pretty sight. And yet we need to understand that whatever we're about to read, no matter what it's rated, is still good. It's still just. The wrath of God is not rated G, but it's still good. And we need to know that. Revelations 4 through 5 remind us of the origins and the basis for God's judgment. Now, when we look at this section, we also see immediately God on the throne. Of course, we, we want to get to the series of judgments. We want to break down the seals and we want to break down the, the trumpets and we want to break down the bowls that are poured out and all the, the locusts that come creeping out of this crevasse in the earth and scare everyone and sting everyone. And we want to read about the great epic battles and all of these things. We know about God. We want to read about those juicy details and yet... John introduces us to God first. Again, let me remind you that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, but it's also about Jesus Christ. We cannot properly understand or receive the message of revelation if we get off into the weeds of the details and forget to stay focused like glue on the central figure, and that is God himself, Jesus Christ himself. We cannot lose sight of that. And the longer we get into our study of Revelation, the deeper we walk into that jungle, yes, the thicker the weeds get and the more dangerous the creatures get, but our eyes have to stay focused 
on Christ. Revelation chapter 4 ensures that that is the case this far into the jungle of Revelation. Now, Christ did not transport or teleport John into heaven in a physical, metaphysical sense, but in a spiritual sense that is only reserved for men that God commissioned to write inspired scripture, especially regarding prophecy, future prophetic events. Men like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, and John received moments like this in their lives. These are not normal experiences. Only a handful of men had them. And they're sharing what they saw with us. Of course, the most important detail here is, as John is in the Spirit, he focuses on God. In this chapter, let us pay attention to this detail, that Revelation 4 focuses on God the Father, on his throne. The Holy Spirit is also mentioned. Revelation 5 continues to focus on the throne room scene in heaven where God reigns over all things, but it shifts attention specifically from God the Father to God the Son. And so Revelation 4 focuses on the Father, Revelation 5 on the Son. We'll talk more about Revelation 5, God willing, next Wednesday. In the opening stage of this vision, John focuses on the majestic glory of God. Notice what he says in verses 2 through 3. Immediately I was in the Spirit, that's that special state given to some of these men who wrote these prophetic scriptures. And behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. This throne is presented to us in a very uh, glorious, uh, very glimmering, very dazzling way. And John doesn't give a lot of details per se, but he uses two different types of precious stones, sardius and, uh, let's see, what was the other one? Jasper. These words can mean a variety of stones. Uh, there is discussion about exactly what are the colors being described here, but what we're really looking at is some kind of palette, color palette, of precious stones with a brown, orangish, reddish, greenish tone, sometimes even more of an opaque type green. And these are not the colors that would immediately come to our minds, right? We're thinking purple and blue and all yellow, things like this, but the colors are a greenish, red, brown, orangish type of a color of some kind. Uh, then we also are told about this rainbow. The rainbow that is mentioned here is, again, not what is immediately going to come to our minds. In, in our minds, we're going to think about a, a multicolored rainbow, like the rainbow that God told us would never go away from the world when, when he gave a promise to Noah. He would never flood the earth again. But this is not a multicolored rainbow. What does John say he saw? He saw a rainbow circling around the throne, either as a circle or as a sphere, that was emerald in color. This is a one-color rainbow. So what John is describing here is not a multicolored scenario like we see in rainbows today. What he's trying to get across is the circular nature of what he saw. It was a ribbon or a circle sphere, maybe even like a glass globe, only not glass, but this green hue emanating from the throne in a circular halo-type fashion. That's what he's describing. Reddish browns, oranges, greens, with a green, emerald, bright, shining gleam to it. 
He doesn't say much about the person, probably because that glory in itself outshined the person within coming from him. Did not see God head on face to face yet. He would not have lived, but he saw his glory. Sitting on that throne. We have to be careful when we, and I'm going to say this a lot as we go through the book of Revelation, we have to be careful that we don't get off into the weeds trying to assign symbolic meanings to each of these stones. What is emerald and sardius? And what do each of these stones represent? And what's the deeper meaning? And look in other places in the Bible where some of these stones are mentioned. You'll find some of them mentioned in the temple or tabernacle sometimes. Um, These are precious stones that should stand out to us. Instead, what we need to do is, is rather than dissect things that John himself is not really paying attention to, we need to focus instead on trying to visualize what John is trying to describe so that we can see what he's trying to describe in our mind's eye. That's what I'm interested in. That's what we should be paying attention to. What did he see? I also don't want to pay attention to the things he didn't see. There's a lot of things that he probably saw or could have looked at that he didn't bother to pay attention to. That's besides the point. We need to pay attention to what he, to the inspiration of the Spirit and the leadership of Christ, his attention was drawn to because that's what we're supposed to have in our minds as well. A throne with these colors, the green glow, the brightness. That's what I am to envision. And then John moves his attention and therefore our attention to this heavenly council that we see. Notice in verses 4 and 10. Further descriptions of what he saw in the throne room of God. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. You can page down to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and we'll look at what they said later on. Now, these thrones may be a set of 12 thrones in a line on both sides of the throne. One here, one here, 12 on a side. You can imagine that. But more likely would be 24 thrones in a circle around the central throne, the throne of God. That's glowing, this bright green glow uh, with God's glory where God sits. 24 smaller, lesser thrones encircling the central throne. And on these thrones are what John describes as 24 elders. What are these 24 elders? These elders wore white robes and had on their heads golden crowns. That's all we know about them so far. Who are these beings? Some suggest that these beings, and they they jump into some math equations, are somehow representative of the 12 tribes or patriarchs of Israel and the 12 original apostles of Jesus Christ. Something like that. 12 plus 12 equals 24, and that somehow represents the people of God through those representatives. Uh, That's possible, perhaps. It has some weaknesses, Um, How does it represent anyone who believed on God before Israel existed? Uh, What about the tribulation? Um, Martyrs, do they represent them? Um, John doesn't say that's who this is. And so we can suggest maybe that's what this is somehow. But John doesn't say, so on what authority can we claim to know that's what it is? We have no authority to do that. We can only surmise or suppose. 
Other suggestions are that these elders represent Christians in general without trying to say it's 12 tribes and 12 apostles. Just in general, these men are human beings selected from humanity to be the 24 representatives of humankind at the throne somehow. And they would make this suggestion due in part to the white robes and the golden crowns that, for instance... In Revelation 2 through 3, in a couple of places, in those letters, believers who persevere and demonstrate their faith to the end and die and victoriously go to be with their Lord forever are promised white robes in some cases and and golden crowns. That's what we will get. That's an interesting observation. It may mean that's somehow what these people are, if they're people. But we don't have time to do it tonight, but I could show you examples in Revelation that other beings, Christ himself, angelic beings, even demonic beings, have either white robes or, in some cases, golden crowns. Did you know that the demonic locusts that crawl out of the ground from the pit of hell later on in Revelation also have gold crowns on their heads? So this is not an automatic answer that they have to be Christian uh, saints. It's possible, but it's not necessary. It's not a foolproof answer. Furthermore, if you look at Revelation 7, 13 to 14, and I'm going to turn there. Revelation 7, 13 to 14, these elders appear other times throughout the book of Revelation. Here's one of these instances. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so what John is doing here is he's letting us know that these 24 elders are not tribulation martyrs. They're a separate group of beings. And then if you look at Revelation 14, 1 through 3, John says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, referring back to these beings in Revelation 4. 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth, separating the redeemed from that group. The 24 elders and the four creatures appear to be one set of beings redeemed type people are something different. And we'll say more about this as we get deeper into Revelation. While these interpretations may be possible in some form, I'm not going to deny that they're possible, the best answer seems to be that they are 24 angelic beings that are part of a heavenly council that God himself has created and formed from the beginning of time for his heavenly purposes. This approach borrows from the way that elders functioned in the first place. In Jewish communities, elders were groups of men who provided input and guidance and counsel for the community. And in this way, these would be heavenly beings that existed in the throne room of God to provide him with interaction as he makes decisions for his kingdom. Furthermore, uh, we see indications of a group like this, for instance, in Psalm 89.7, going back to the Old Testament. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and most translations would translate assembly of the saints uh, as this gathering or assembly or council of holy ones referring to angelic beings. 
saints being a more New Testament reference to Christians in the church age. And the King James Bible and the New King James carries this over, uh, seems to impose that back on the Old Testament rather than let it just speak out of its own self. And it is very likely that this is a reference to angelic beings, an assembly of angelic beings in heaven. And to be held in reverence by what? All those around him. Then you have a passage like Isaiah 24, 23, referring to the end times events. The moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. And I could make a a larger case for this. Uh, Others have done so and much more. Uh, But I'll simply suggest this is probably what John saw. He saw 24 angelic creatures wearing white robes, wearing gold crowns that encircled the throne of God as a heavenly council. And then John looks at the throne itself a little bit more, and he describes this emerald glow coming from it, but he also describes flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder and sounds of voices. I'll say more about the voices in just a minute. But when we look at this, I think we can safely assume that coming out of this green glow throne room with councils of elders sitting around, uh, then when you see flashes of lightning, thunder coming out in voices, you can safely say that the throne room of God is not a quiet place. Situated prominently somewhere in front of the throne, John saw seven lamps, which refers to seven torches lit up with fire, burning, blazing, fiery torches, which represent the Holy Spirit. You say, how do you know that? Well, because John actually tells us that, the seven spirits of God, and we've made a case for that being the Holy Spirit uh, previously, I won't do that tonight. The Holy Spirit himself. And then in front of this scene is this great sea of glass like crystal. And if you read that kind of straightforwardly from Greek into English, it reads something like this great sea, this great, as it were, sea of glass like crystal. So he's not saying he saw an ocean or a sea. He's saying what I saw, the best that I can describe, is like it was something like a sea. Only it wasn't water. It was like glass. But it wasn't opaque. There was no tint to it. There was no color to it. That was clear as crystal. I've been to the ocean recently, as you may know, and it's large, but it's not clear. It's got sand and salt and fish and algae and foam and all other kinds of things in it. You can't see straight through it. It's not clear. This phenomenon, whatever it is, this great, like a sea of clear glass, was a large feature of the throne room. It wasn't a little closet that John was walking into. It was a vast, open, majestic space. And at the center of it was this throne, green with the flashes of lightning and thunder coming out, and the circle of elders sitting around, and this great sea of glass indicating this this vast, immense separation from the God on the throne and everything else that exists. Also, the absolute purity of the place. And then John's attention. Can you imagine here what John is seeing? Come up into heaven. He goes to the portal and he looks and the first thing he sees is God on the throne. And then he sees these elders sitting around. And then he sees uh, the, the flashes of lightning. And then he sees the torches. And then he sees the great sea of glass. And then he goes back to the throne again. And he sees four creatures 
standing out. Four angelic creatures who are more fascinating than the 24 elders from a visual standpoint. The, the, the 24 elders kind of, kind of looked so ordinary that he just pointed out they had white robes and crowns. But these four things, now these things were different. John describes them as being in the midst and around, and by combining these words together, he's letting us know that they were in close proximity to the throne. Maybe they were hovering above, maybe they were floating around. They certainly were not sitting on, because that's what the Father does, but they were in close proximity to the throne, closer than anything else. They're covered by many eyes in every place. He kind of points that out twice. I think the first time he sees it, it's interesting, but then it's still bugging him. So later on, he says it again. They had eyes like everywhere. What, what would that even look like? No pun intended. Um, they had eyes everywhere. They had six wings. Why did they have so many eyes? I I can't tell you why, because John doesn't say why, but I will throw out my suspicion. My suspicion is perhaps it was God created them that way as guardians of his glory so that they wouldn't miss a detail of what they saw when they saw him. Because they were essentially the worship leaders of the throne room, leading all other beings in divine worship, the epicenter of worship. That's what these four creatures were responsible for. And perhaps God simply didn't want them to miss a detail, so he put eyes on them literally in every place. Each resembled a creature that we're familiar with on earth. And in this way, resembles what we read about in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1, verse 10. Ezekiel also describes something similar. Each of the angels he saw in the Old Testament, uh, they had the face of a man. One of them did, and each of the four had a face of a lion. Uh, Each of them did. And on the right side, each had a face of an ox and the face of an eagle. And John describes a similar thing here. The only difference is in Ezekiel... He describes four creatures that had four faces. One thing here, and one thing here, and one thing here, and one thing here, or something like that. The way John describes it is there were these four creatures, very similar to those four creatures, only each of them had one face. He said, are they different? I'm going to throw out to you the possibility that maybe they're not different. Maybe what John saw was just all of them on one side. Ezekiel saw them when they rotated. Is that possible? Absolutely, that's possible. When I see contradictions in Scripture, I will never deny that potential contradictions exist. How do you take the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and put them together? Well, it's kind of hard to do unless you're God. How do you describe Jesus who cannot sin, being a human being with faults like we have? Well, that's kind of hard to explain unless you're God. How do you explain the Trinity properly? Well, that's kind of hard to do unless you're God. But sometimes we need to do the work of trying to reconcile things. And I think in this case we can. I think these are the same type of creatures. We also see that uh, these creatures had six wings, which resembles what Isaiah saw when he saw the throne room of God in Isaiah 6 too. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, each covered his face. With two, each covered its feet. With two, each flew. John describes a similar thing here, although he doesn't describe what they do with their pairs of wings. He just says they have six wings. When we read Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, Together, we get a more complete view of what these creatures are like and what they do. As with the stones that John used to describe the appearance of God on the throne, we also need to be careful not to inject dogmatic, symbolic, 
interpretations of what these things mean. What does the ox mean? What does the eagle face mean? What does the lion mean? What does the human face mean? What do the six wings represent? And all of these type of questions we could ask. But John doesn't ask these questions, nor does he answer those questions. He describes what he saw. And that's what we need to pay attention to. Because it's our job to begin by visualizing what he describes. That's what we need to see in our mind's eye. I did a little Googling today. Throne room of God. And I got all kinds of weird horror story type pictures. They were not glorious at all. They're ugly which demonstrates the challenge of trying to visualize these things. John did his best with words. I think paintings ruin it. And so I didn't show you any pictures tonight. I want you to depend on the Spirit of God to visualize the descriptions John gives and let those impressions sink into your mind and ask God for that help. But one thing that fascinates me is that these creatures resemble things we already know. It doesn't mean one had a lion's face implanted on it surgically. And one had a cow face or ox face. It's not what it means. It just means that John sees something he has never seen before. They don't have creatures like this in the terrestrial realm where human beings walk the earth. But the only way to describe things in heaven to people on earth is with things that they know about on earth. And so he has to do the best that he can referring to whatever he learned in zoology class to to classify these creatures in heaven. Carl Linnaeus would have been impressed, perhaps. Maybe he would have chuckled at what he was trying to do here. But it's fascinating to me that the same God whose mind conceived of eagles that fly and lions that prowl and and ox that feed on the grass and, and human beings seemed to pull from the same pool of ideas when he created angelic creatures. Elders that look like humans and creatures that have faces like animals. The same God is the source of it all. By the way, I personally look forward to that day when the terrestrial realm and the heavenly realm are merged together and we cohabit together for eternity and enjoy a mixed realm of all God's good creatures. And that's going to be adventurous. That's going to be exciting. That's going to be interesting. That's something to look forward to. This life has great variety. That life will have even more. The best of both worlds. But John gets a peek at this world. We also then see words of reverence and worship. John moves now from what he saw to what he heard. And what we see is that these four leaders at the epicenter of divine worship are saying something. It says they do not rest day or night, saying. Now, what this means here is is not that they did this every second of the day to use our terms. They had no rest day and night, which doesn't mean every second John looked, they were doing this and saying these words repeatedly, like a broken loop. What it means is that, as far as we conceive, not a day went by that they did not say these words. Maybe they did it once a day, to use our frame of reference. Maybe they did it multiple times a day or once an hour, like the clock that strikes at the top of every hour. Maybe that's what John is describing. They did this regularly, and they took no vacations. They didn't take the night off. This doesn't stop, apparently, in the throne room of God. It's like like the, the guard at London's tower. They're always there, or the soldier's that have the changing of the guard. There's always someone guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier, rain or shine. That's kind of the idea that we get here. What's interesting is that we know this is not the only thing these creatures do. They stop to do other things. Revelation chapter 6. 
Verses 1, 3, 5, and 7 tell us that these four creatures are the ones who give the orders from God, not on their own authority, to send out the four horse riders. Sounds like fiction literature, right? Four angelic creatures, horse riders, are going to go out one at a time and take some facet of God's wrath into the world. And it's these four angelic creatures that will send them out into the world to bear God's wrath one at a time. We're going to see that in Revelation 6. So they don't do this non-stoppingly to make up a word. They do other things for God as well. But one of the things they do regularly is say these words, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We don't know that they were singing. Maybe they did sing. It's possible. Certainly, uh, that would not surprise any of us. All we know is that they said these words. And if you look in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, we see the same thing, that those angelic creatures in Isaiah 6 also said Only there it says they cried out with a loud voice. So this wasn't whispering. I guess you'd have to kind of be loud to kind of come out over top of the rumblings of thunder and lightning that are coming out from this throne. Holy, holy, holy. Can you imagine those words being announced at high decibels by these creatures over the top of thunder and lightning coming out from the throne? At this throne, way down at the end of this large, vast sea of translucent glass. And the 24 council members sitting there, what are we supposed to say? What counsel can we offer? There are things like this said in the Bible. Who can offer counsel to the Lord? The only thing that these elders could do is, as we're going to see, is respond to these four creatures and worship when they said worship. There's not a lot of counsel they could actually give, no matter who they are. This announcement by these four creatures tells us three things. The holiness of God, the omnipotence of God, and the eternality of God. By holiness, we are being told about the the complete difference of God the way that he is separate from all his creation, untouched by sin, wickedness, and the evil that pervades us all. Which is why the rulers of this world and the judges of this earth, no matter how well intended, all have the curse of sin in them. But this one who rules over all is holy. He is perfect in every way separate from all that is evil and fallen. The fact that it is repeated three times speaks to this, that he is not just kind of holy or more holy and separate and unique and special than anything else. He is completely, transcendently, perfectly, entirely holy. 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 There's no end to that description. There's no flaw in it. There's no hidden secret problem. He is also um, omnipotent. We see here that they say, Lord God Almighty, which is the same thing that the angel creatures say in Isaiah chapter 6 as well. When they say the Lord of hosts. That's the Hebrew version. The Greek version is almighty. It literally is referring to the fact that God has instant total command over countless angelic armies. He can unleash them at any time by saying the word. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. Even if we had a massive fleet of nuclear spaceships, There's nothing we can do to stop the heavenly armies. And we're going to learn about these heavenly armies later on in Revelation. No one can stand in the way. 
This upholds God's absolute, undefeatable dominion and sovereignty over all things. Finally, the one who was and is and is to come refers to his eternality. This has been mentioned in Revelation 1, 4, and 8. We know that. But let's not forget, when was this description of God first explicitly revealed? In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am, as the basis for his deliverance of his people Israel from the oppression that they faced in unbelieving Egypt. Here, he is announcing himself to John before his deliverance of his people, the church, from the oppression that they faced under the institutions of this world. In the first century, it was Rome. Rome is going to be revived in theory, right? And this system that we find ourselves in today is oppressive to the things of Christ. And even if we can rectify every single injustice, even if it is systemic in the world, one thing I guarantee you is once we get it all fixed, there's one people group that will never face acceptance. It's us. Those who follow Christ will never receive that treatment. We will always be the last one marginalized. That will only change when Christ returns. We have to be okay with that. But he is the one who is eternal. All other systems are temporal. And he is the one that will rise up and win the victory in the end. This was important, right? Because the Roman Caesars rose and fell. Presidents rise and fall. Prime ministers rise and fall. Dictators rise and fall. Our leader does not. He is over all and eternal and all-powerful. Whenever these four angelic creatures announce these words, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see also that I like this from the poetic standpoint, if you like poetry. Three singular words, holy, 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 line one. Line two, Lord God Almighty. Three more words, but it's more interesting. It's not the same word repeated. Line two. Line three. So there's three lines and three things in every line. That's symmetry. I love that. Who was and is and is to come. We actually have this as well. We have three adjectives. We have three nouns or titles. We have three verbs. The perfectionism in me. This is just beautiful. Now, whenever this was announced by these four, the, the 24 other angelic council members, what did they do? They fell out of their thrones, on their face prostrate. They threw their crowns in the direction of the throne. And they had words of their own. Now, i got to pop a bubble for you tonight. There's this musical group I don't know anything about except for there's a title. It's kind of catchy. It's called Casting Crowns. And there's other good hymns of the faith that talk about believers. Someday we're going to cast our crowns at his feet, referring to Jesus. Now, this is referring to the throne of the Father, number one. And it's describing probably angelic creatures casting their crowns. At the very least, even if this is 24 human beings for whatever reason, if that's what this is, hand-selected 24 who get to sit in this group, that's probably not us, at least. The chances of it being any of us are very small. If it's any of us, it's probably only one. I don't know who. It's probably not me. So... There's nothing in the Bible that says we're all going to cast our thrones at the feet of Jesus. It's hymns that tell us that. 
and a contemporary music group's title. But it's an idea that we've come up with because of those things. Now, the idea that I should be humble enough to cast my crown, that is all very good. That's a very good perspective to have. You should have that view. But that's not what this is talking about. These four angelic creatures will cast their thrones at his feet. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're on God's council member team? You can't offer counsel. You could just sit there and observe his glory and worship whenever the, the worship leaders say worship. By the way, this isn't something that happens once. Someday this is going to happen, and they're going to do this. Bang, and then it's going to be over. No, what does it say? There's no stopping, day or night. This is a regular occurrence where the four worship leaders call out this nice three-part pattern of praise to God, to the triune God, and every single time, here we go again, the elders fall out of their throne, cast their thrones, their, their crowns at the throne. They probably gather them up, sit down again, wait for the next call. Oh, here we go again, worship them again. That's what we do up here. We can't offer counsel. It happens over and over and over again. It's not a one-time situation. Again, even if this was human beings, this isn't a one-time event. And so we have to put this in perspective. Sometimes... Our hymns are great. Sometimes our hymns get in the way of good theology. There's the song, Holy, 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 all the saints will cast their crowns before your throne. Um, I was telling Chris, we should change that. All the elders throw their crowns. That would be more biblically accurate. At least think about it. How many other things do we think that are not exactly in the Bible. It's humbling, right? But it says that they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. This doesn't mean, very important theologically, that these elders and these four angelic creatures add anything to God. We don't give anything to God. Everything that we have that is good, is from God. In fact, the very praise these elders worship says, you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so we don't add anything to God when we give him praise. What we do, and what these creatures do, when anything in creation does this, in giving honor and glory and thanks to God, we're simply acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive such praise. We are acknowledging that he alone is worthy, which is exactly what they're doing. You alone is the idea. You, singular, are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. If these creatures give counsel, it is this. You deserve praise. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We're certainly not going to suggest any such thing. The only thing we can do is praise you. And we sit here and watch you all the time. We hear every word that comes out of your mouth. We see everything that you ever do. Every look on your face. And you are worthy. And this is what John sees. This is what John hears. Why? What is the basis for this praise? They say, because he created all things. There is no science or scientist or scientific theory or hypothesis that will ever uncover or discover anything that God did not make. There's many things God made we have yet to discover. Planets in the solar system, animals in the sea. There's still so much more to discover for you and me. But everything we see and will ever find has been made by him. It's just us who are blind. He's made it all. Jesus made it all. All to him I owe. Right? Right? Revelation 5, Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I owe. That's Revelation 5. Redemption, salvation demands our praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. But creation itself alone demands the praise of all things to the Lord God Almighty. You don't need salvation to demand his praise. Creation is enough. So our final takeaways for tonight. How should we respond? Well, I want to read what I wrote. Like John and the 28 creatures, we need to take time to see and to savor the scene at God's throne. See and savor the scene at God's throne. Envision in your mind's eye what John saw. Focus first on the dazzling, sparkling throne with our glorious God upon it, encircled by a glowing green halo of glory. Observe the somber angelic council sitting around him, the fiery presence of the Holy Spirit before him, and the vast expanse of the crystal clear space beneath it all. Let the thunder and lightning jolt your senses and listen closely to the loud heavenly voices exclaiming God's unmatched character and unrivaled glory. Take it all in like a child seeing Niagara Falls for the first time or the Grand Canyon for the first time. That's how you should read this passage. Don't get off into the weeds of what does this face represent. Take it in. If angels marvel at the majesty of God, so should we. But the second takeaway for us tonight is that we also should bow before the sovereignty of God. Again, if angels, his divine counsel, high-ranking angels, do nothing but fall at his feet, so should we. As we marvel at his majesty, we should bow like the elders before the sovereignty of God. No throne rooms, no executive offices, no legislative halls, no courtrooms come anywhere close to rivaling the authority and the power of our God. As Psalm 115 in verse 3 says, Our God who is in heaven, he does. Whatever he pleases. And that's perfectly okay. Because he's threefold holy. He's the Lord of hosts. And he's eternal. And he made everything. He can do whatever he wants. We don't like kings who do that. We don't like presidents who do that. We don't like judges and legislators and mayors and governors who do whatever they want, although it feels sometimes like all these people do whatever they want. All of them. But God can do whatever he wants because he sits outside of it all and above it all on his throne in heaven. And then finally, Psalm 2, 4 through 5. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. We sit and we watch the news, especially in these days. But don't you get tired of saying that? That's like all the time. Before the election, after the election, next year, during the pandemic, after the pandemic, if there's ever such a thing. And and, and then the next thing will be the world war. There's always going to be something to be discouraged about. That has something to do with bad leadership, bad government, poor management, and all these kind of things. But the one who sits outside of it all and above it all on the throne of the heavens, he laughs. (laughs) Well, they thought that was good. The conspiracy theories didn't even catch that one. And it's so funny. It's not going to work. It's going to fail like every other plan of every world empire in the history of civilization, like a house of cards. And at the end, I will call my heavenly angels. In fact, the four creatures are going to call out horsemen. They're going to go down. They're going to do some things. I'm going to open up a scroll, and it's going to do some things. And at the end, I'm going to wipe the plate clean. 
He does this. He laughs. The Lord will have them in derision. Then he shall speak in his wrath. This is Revelation. And distress them in his displeasure. And if you want to skim down to the end of Psalm chapter 2, you find the only good thing to do, especially if you're a world leader these days, is to kiss the sun. Because if you don't, he will be angry with you, and that is not good for you. Because he can do whatever he wants. And when he does, he always does the right thing. So I urge all of us to marvel at the majesty of God and to bow before the sovereignty of God. This chapter alone can guide you through the next four weeks of your life if he tarries.